Welcome to our podcast series, How Bass Music Shaped British Society. Bass culture research seeks to re-examine the history of Jamaican sound system culture in Britain and how its legacy has revolutionised the musical landscape from the way we socialise to economy. In this series, we explore sound, business, culture, people, preservation and society with fruitful discussion. Man, if you know I support bass my name is Red Saunders. I was born in Beaconsfield. I was a what was known as a bulge baby in the Second World War because all the mums who were pregnant, the Nazis had a spurt at the end of the war. The statistics are quite horrific. It's about the last three, four months of the war, it was about 20,000 Londoners died when the V2s and the V1s and the Boodlebugs were coming over. It was their last throw of Hitler's so-called super weapon. And so lots of pregnant mums were moved out of London because so many people were being um, killed by the V2 bombers. So I was born in Beaconsfield because I was born just at the end of the war. Now, we have met before and one of the things that um, unites the work that we'll be discussing and your social activism is the work that you did in art. And you really began in theatre. Yeah. Can you tell us about cast? I um, actually I actually began in art as a, a photographic apprentice, um, but uh, it was whilst I was a photographic apprentice that um, I worked in a big West End advertising agency called S.H. Benson's, and I had a friend upstairs. He, I was in the photographic department downstairs when I was like real kind of T-boy, classic apprenticeship. I didn't touch a camera for like about a year. So I was sweeping up, making tea, you know, all that stuff. You can't make a cup of tea, boy. You can't take a photograph. You know, it was all that. And um, this guy upstairs uh, became a friend. He was in the art department. And he said, oh, you, well, I'm going out this weekend. He said, do you want to come with me? He said, I'm going to this uh, folk club. And I went, oh, folk club? You know, I was a mod, you know. I was like, what, folk, you know. And he said, no, it's, it's really great. I said, it's not my thing, man. You know, I'm, I'm really not into folk music. And he said, there's lots of girls. I went, oh, he said, no, they're really great girls. I said, okay, all right, well, I'll, I'll come with you. So we went to this place and it was called the Peanuts Club and it was in East London. And um, it was called the Peanuts Club because Hugh Gateskill, the leader of the Labour Party, said anybody who was in favour of Ban the Bomb, who was a unilateralist, had peanuts for brains. And so they called it, and they were all Ban the Bombers. And so it was a, called the Peanuts Club and they had poets and folk singers and all the rest of it. And yeah, you know, it was great. I was sitting down, and as he said, the girls were lovely, and we were chatting away. And suddenly, we're in this room above this pub, this little room in, in I think it was in Bow. And suddenly, a group of four people started to I became aware of them, and they cleared the chairs and the table away, and they made a little space in the corner of the room. And they had blue jeans, blue t-shirts, and white clown faces, and they had four small chairs. And they proceeded to do something that changed my life forever. And they did this piece of agitprop theatre play about the Vietnam War. And it was the Vietnam War. You were there, the whole thing was happening. It was a 20-minute show right in front of you. These people were absolutely fucking incredible. And it, I later found out it's called agitprop, agitational propaganda. And they were a left-wing theatre group called Cast cartoon, archetypical slogan theatre. And that night was my road to Damascus experience and it changed my life. And within three months I joined them. And so could you tell us the difference between cast and, um, and cartoon clowns? Cartoon clowns, after we'd been in cast for several years, like most bands, we split up and cartoon clowns came out of cast. We each went on separate ways. And then about 30 years later, we all came back together again in the Hackney Empire, when they re, you know, reclaimed the Hackney Empire from being a bingo hall. So what year was this, when, when, you, when you had this? This, was, this, was, this would have been 64, 60, 63, 64, 65, that period. Okay. So what we're looking at there is, uh, you have a wealth of social, political... Oh, absolutely. Stuff. Absolutely. And in the theatre, we were travelling. I mean, I was just a, you know, I was a, a naive young mod. You know, this, this was the beginning of my politics. It was like absolutely incredible. So everything was up for discussion, everything was up for cultural, you know, 
anything. I mean, poetry, we'd go and see Czechoslovakian avant-garde theatre groups. We, you know, because of that time, obviously we were totally into drugs and sex and rock and roll and politics. And so the Vietnam War, um, the, the civil rights movement in the United States, the um, uh, civil rights movement in Northern Ireland, the women's movement, gay liberation, all these things were, the whole world was in turmoil. And we got very involved with Zimbabwe, in those days Rhodesia. We became part of, uh, there was a small ZANU group uh, in London, and we met them and we became, we set up our own little thing called Majority Rule for Rhodesia. And we started making posters and sticking posters up and doing plays and all these things. So then the anti-apartheid movement, it, this whole cauldron of stuff was part of our everyday activity. And it was all open for the theatre, you know. So the artistic interpretation and reinterpretation of it to, you know, to agitate, to actually create an immersive experience. Do you think that that expanded your knowledge and investment in politics? Absolutely, absolutely. Because I'm not an intellectual, you know, I'm not, a, I read a bit, I read it as much as I can, but I'm not like heavily read, you know what I mean? I haven't read all the classics and I, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But the practicality of being in a theatre group, traveling everywhere from Aberystwyth to Newcastle, to Aberdeen, to Portsmouth, you know, we were on the road doing our shows at weekend. We'd work at the week, so it was an incredible commitment. We'd rehearse at night, we, had, we, we all had to earn a living, you know what I mean? And um, so in the course of putting on the plays and seeing what worked and what didn't work, w w whether it was in substance or style, whether the way you, 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 you used your theatre, how you learned to project your voice, what this did, what that did, that all came from being in the theatre. It was absolutely incredible. And we really were that classic sort of hippie family. You know, there was about a dozen of us and we were all very close together for that very intense period of time. So, you know, like rock and roll bands and all that, or any kind of band, you know, in the end that people just, young people explode. You can't, I mean, you can't be together for more three years without all blowing up, you know what I mean? And that's sort of what happened. So, um, in terms of keeping a roof over your head and, keep, and food in your belly, photography was the... I was still doing my apprenticeship, yeah. So this manages to coalesce artistically in what you what you subsequently go on to do. Yeah, I mean, we shared flats. Well, I mean, we all lived, we quite often lived, in, you know, in, in a place, or we squatted sometimes, or we lived together very cheap in those days. I mean, it's a different world to now, you know, so. And you're single. I was on my own. I was single, so I didn't need a lot. So tell me about what drove you to your interest to photography. There was no great spiritual reason for photography. The reason I got into photography is I went to the Paddington, my mum was fed up with me living at home and she was pushing me because I was doing the odd, odd jobs when I'd left school. I thought I left school at 15, I was doing odd jobs and she said, look, you've got to get yourself a you know, proper job. And so I went down to the Paddington, what well, in those days, I used to live near Warwick Avenue and we went to the Paddington Youth Employment Office and the bloke had finished doing this really boring interview with me and we hadn't got anywhere and I had no, and I was just about to get up and go. And he shut the filing cabinet and I got up to go and as I went up, he said, oh, hold on a minute. And he pulled this, this file had fallen out of the cabinet on the floor. He said, oh, no, he said, there's something here. And I said, what's that? He said, they want a bright young lad in an advertising agency in the West End, in the photographic department. I thought, oh, you know, that classic bright young lad. So I thought, well, that's you know, because one of my only GCSEs was art, geography and history. You know, I'd failed English and maths and all the rest of it. And I always had an interest in, 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 in the arts. And um, so that was, so I went along to this place and I, I got an apprenticeship. And that's, that, and then the more I got into it, the more I loved, oh, well, this is great. I love, you know, and that was it. So then you mix photography and theatre and then you've got a project for the rest of your life, you know. And then musically, you're a mod. Oh, I was a mod. Absolutely, yeah. I was down the Marquee Club. I used to work on Wednesday night, get two and six a night, get two and six a night, see the bands for free and collect the empty bottles. Then I used to go to all the mod clubs, the Face in Ham Yard, um, used to go to the, the Scene Club where all the faces went. And then we went to the uh, Whiskey A Go Go in Wardour Street and downstairs went to the Flamingo Club. And that was the first time I became really acquainted with black music and black culture was the Flamingo. The Flamingo was amazing. I think the root of the Flamingo was that it, 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 actually it was really interesting. I was work. I'd moved to Gilchrist Studios. My apprenticeship was moved on, and Gilchrist is in Hatton Gardens, and you, you, they specialised there in large format photography. 
and there was a young West Indian dispatch rider for Gilchrist Studios, who I became friends with at Gilchrist. And he was one of those, and this, this was in sort of, you know, this must be late 60s. So a dispatch rider in those days would have the big old motorbike, but he had the sidecar. Remember the old sidecar? So he had a sidecar, and all the artwork was in the sidecar. And so we, and we, we became friendly, and he said, um, do you ever go, he said, you're mod, do you ever go down the Flamingo? I said, I've never even heard of the Flamingo. But I'd been to the whiskey above, but I'd never thought of the, you know. And he said, I'll come to the Flamingo. So I went for, and that was... That was it for black music, it was like, but that was, you know, African-American black music. That wasn't Caribbean or music, but it just, wow, it was like another thing. And that was where I think I, probably the first place I'd started to take drugs because I, I brought my first matchbox full of Purple Hearts for two shillings, I think. And so then we started, then uh, mods and amphetamines. So we were all on, um, that's how you'd last a weekend. And listening to the music, having this this amalgamation of interest and how it actually allowed you to express yourself artistically and politically, was there was there any music in particular that chimed with your with your growing political awakening? Hmm. Captain Beefheart. I was a big Captain Beefheart fan. And I think that was to do with the oddity of Beefheart. You know, he'd go, ang, ang, sing like songs like that, ang, bang, bang, and then the bass would go, boom, boom. And it, you know what I mean? It was a very odd, I really liked Beefheart. Um, and then very quickly I was into R&B. Uh, you know, it, I don't know. Well, I, 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 suppose I was very, very broad. What did they say? Catholic taste. So I really liked the Rolling Stones. I really like the Beatles. I went to see the Beatles live. You know, uh, I, I loved all, I mean, I, I was very broad. And then, of course, the Who were enormous because we were mods. So the Who, the Small Faces, the Kinks. But, and, and just trying to think, because when you put me on the spot with a thing, at the Flamingo, there was a house band called the Mojos, who were a really fantastic band who never, no one's ever heard of again. I think their drummer was Mick Fleetwood or Fleetwood Mac, and they were a three-piece. And what happened was, you say what particular, particular things, do you know, rather than particular specific music, like, yeah, there was all that, but because of the Flamingo Club, I became a complete fan of the Hammond organ with the Leslie speakers. The sound that that R&B sort of jazzy stuff they used to play down the Flamingo, and the mojos were very jazzy. And also down there was Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, and then Cyril Davis and the All Stars. So I suppose it's a bluesy, R&B type of thing. And then, of course, popular music, and you're buying records, and you're buying The Temptations, and then you're getting into soul and all the rest of it. It's such a huge question, Jackie. I know. It's like ginormous to dump that on somebody. You're welcome. <laughs> so, I mean, in 1974, Labour get into power. They return to power. As you, as you march into the 1970s, what kind of a young man are you blossoming into politically, artistically, professionally? Well, the apprenticeship is over and I've started on my own. And um, what happened was that um, a friend of mine, a guy called Roland Muldoon, who, who was the founder of Cast Theatre, we, we, we were really good friends and we were sharing, him, him, him and his partner Claire, we were sharing a, a flat together and all the rest of it. And then when I started on my own in photography, I got my first couple of good friends said, look, I need this photograph. Or, you know, you, 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 you're ready to take it on your own. I said, yeah, all right. And I started to do a few things. And Roland said, well, why don't, you know, if you go on your own, I'll come with you. I'll, be, I'll, I'll find you work. And we, had, we were very naive. He went, I'll be your agent. And, look, and, and it was like, we were so naive because we were by then we were complete hippies. I had hair down to my ass and a huge beard, and Roland was mad hair everywhere. And we were real, we were sixty-eight hippies. You know what I mean? And I remember we went to try to set up a bank account, and we couldn't. No, no bank would. Ex you know, we started up our company, and every time we went in there, everybody winced from us. You know, so it was like a really weird period. You know, but we did start up, and we started on our own. And then there was an advert in the British Journal of Photography 
for a photographer called Gerard Mankiewicz and we became lifelong friends and Gerard was the Rolling Stones photographer at that time and Gerard photographed everybody and everybody came to the studio and we met everybody Jimi Hendrix sitting all night having a spliff chatting with Jimi, Jimi, Jimi Hendrix you know telling you know about being 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 a, a GI and in the and all this stuff it was an amazing period and um so all those things that sort of coalesced and came out of it started in Gerard Studios called GM Studios. And so that was where we started to, to work on our own, try to put out contacts and start, started to, to, to earn a living as a photographer on our own. I mean, forgive me if this is a naive question, but in many respects, working with Gerard in, in that um, context, you go from being a mod, a follower of music, to being somebody, you're not on a par with, you, uh, with Gerard's um, pictorial subjects, but you're starting to see them in, in, a, yeah. in a light that's different. Yes. Where there's an equal pegging yeah. when you're having a conversation. Yes. Does this start to have an effect on the kind of art that you want to... Uh, not necessarily, but you do realise that, uh, you know, things aren't quite what they seem <laughs> very, very quickly. Um, and you do, you know, because Gera did all this work with him, you realise, my God, the shit he had to go through sometimes, you know. Uh, but then you learn that with commercial work anyway. You've got to jump through hoops or you, are you going to decide to work with this asshole or not? Or, you know, or is this beyond your ken? You don't want to do this or whatever, you know. But it was, it was, very, it was certainly a really interesting period because we then, we moved, me and Roland moved to a much bigger studio in Great Windmill Street in Soho. And a, few, and a little while later, Gerard came out, left his place and came with us. And then he came to my studio. And then we had a much bigger studio, and then he started to really do heavy commercial work. I mean, and then we moved on to a studio in Hampstead, a really big studio in Gospel Oak. I mean, Gerard shot, you know, even with his work, everybody, everybody and everything. And his stories working with the Stones are quite incredible. He was 18 years old when Andrew Luke Olden, their manager, said to him, we're going to the States. They were friends. He said, do you want to come with us? And he just went, what? And he just took his little rolly flakes. All his, there's none of this stuff like, you know, shooting on little cat. He, he took a bloody rolly flex with him. And they're all medium format, and they're quite amazing photographs. And he was on the road, and he went through all the stories, all the gangsters, all the stuff. So it was very, very interesting. And then the demystifying the elitism of the Stones and, you know, this ridiculous idiot behaviour he had to go through on, on different times. And, you know. So when you moved to Windmill Street, what can you give us a, a rough timeline of that? What year was that roughly, did you say? Ooh, gee, I'm terrible on that. I can't remember. I would have thought the time you're talking about, early 70s. Early 70s, yeah. So when we think about the 70s in relation to, you know, your relevance to the project, 1976 is a key year. Yeah. Um, so it's August 1976. Eric Clapton performs in Birmingham. And new, how does news get to you about what he said in endorsing Enoch Powell's Wings of Blood? We were in the Cartoon Clowns manifestation by then. And we were at rehearsal in my, my, my studio in Soho. We used it as a rehearsal base. We had a band and everything. We had a band in those days. So we, we had a band, we had the theatre group and everything. And it was a lovely big place and we could store all the kit. And we were rehearsing. And someone came in with a melody maker. And they said, have you read this shit about Clapton? We went, no, what's all that? So they told us, no, Eric Clapton's done a concert in Birmingham where he said he supports Enoch Powell. He thinks Powell should be the prime minister. He thinks the wog should get out and the packy should go and on and on and on. And we're going, that can't be possible. No, it can't be right. So we look again and then next week it's in New Musical Express and then there it's all out. So we're looking at this. I mean, I was a, you know, I was a fan of this music. I'd been to see Blind Faith. I had Clapton's albums. You know what I mean? I was a big fan. And um, I'd seen him in the early days when I was doing my two and sixpence a night uh, collecting empty coat bottles at the Marquee Club. He was a young musician, sort of Cyril Davis All-Stars or early versions of uh, Jeff Beck or whatever, you know. All those young musicians, they were, it was the Marquee the where they, 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 they earned their spurs. So I, I couldn't believe it. So anyway, the more we read about it, and it was, yes, it was real, it had happened, you know. I, and a disbelief turned into anger, you know. And I said, this is just fucking ridiculous. And so I did something I'd never done before in my life. I wrote a letter. 
I thought, I'm going to write a fucking letter to the, to the music press. You know, I'm going to write saying, what an arsehole, what, this is ridiculous. And so I wrote a letter. Would you read the... Yeah, I'll read the letter. So it was after rehearsal, we sat down and went, we'll write this letter. So when we read about Eric Clapton's Birmingham concert, when he urged support for Enoch Powell, we nearly puked. What's going on, Eric? You've got a touch of brain damage, mate. So you're going to stand up for us and you think we're being colonialised by black people. Come on, you've been taking too much of that Daily Express stuff. You know you can't handle it. Own up, half your music is black. You're rock music's biggest colonialist. You're a good musician, but where would you be without the blues and R&B? You've got to fight the racist poison, otherwise you degenerate into the sewer with the rats and all the money men that ripped off rock culture with their checkbooks and plastic crap. Rock was and can still be a real progressive culture, not a placid not a package mail-order stick-on nightmare of mediocre garbage. Keep the faith. Black and white, unite and fight. We want to organise a rank-and-file movement against the racist poison in rock music. We urge support. All those interested, write to Rock Against Racism, Box M, Six Cotton Gardens, London E2. P.S. Who shot the sheriff, Eric? Sure as hell wasn't you, mate. September 1976. Now we're sat in your office, you're wearing a Rock Against Racism bag, and it's the day after the anniversary of Enoch, the, you know, the 49th anniversary of Enoch Powell delivering that speech. How long before your letter did you start to get a, an understanding that what you had said had chimed with as soon as the P.O. box address we gave you there called up, he said, he said, we've got 400 fucking letters here. I said, what? What do you mean? I mean, I'd written the letter and that was it. Just a moment of anger, an explosion. I didn't think, I've never written a letter before in my life. It just goes to show, it's worth writing letters. Within... Ten days, we'd got, that was it. So the six of us, who'd, I got some mates. I didn't want it to be on my own. It would look silly. So I got some people in the theatre group, a couple of other old, old friends to sign the letter with us. And I said, hey, we've got all these letters, you know. Said, what? So we all met up in the studio. Oh, we better bloody get organised, you know. So very quickly we organised a gig right in the heart of NF Territory in Bow in East London with Carol Grimes. And um, at the Queen Alexandra pub, and that, that, that was the beginnings. Um, just taking you back just a, a little bit there, um, when, you, when you got your colleagues, your friends and, and fellow performers to actually sign that letter, obviously you had no, under, no idea that, you know, what would actually result no. from it, but the idea that you were putting something in co into contact. Now you sent that letter to more than one... Yes, we sent it to Melody Maker, New Musical Express, Sounds... Black Echoes, there was a couple of weird little lefty um, kind of music for socialism or, you know, kind of a couple of little lefty outfits. And we sent it to um, left-wing newspapers. So we sent it to Socialist Worker, Socialist Challenge and The Morning Star. And how many of them published it? I think they all published it, except for The Morning Star. And who was the first to Melody Maker, we won LP of the week. <laughs> so you get this all of these responses back. What does that compel you and your colleagues to do? What do you actually feel obliged to do? Well, can we take a breather for a second? Sure. Because what we need to do is to get another piece of information here. Sorry, Michael, let me just get behind you here, because in here is a little piece of paper. Tell you. Yeah, this is it. I'll just run this past you, Jack, see if it makes sense, because this is what is here. 
that's the first thing that we, we, we did. We, we prepared this as soon as a letter. And these are all the letters. These are little clips. So what we did was to form the ad hoc committee. And you can see lots of very interesting things. Well, I can, but I don't know. So this to was from 1976? Yeah, this was just after the letter. This was just after the letter. So, so this was the letter was published. So we got the letter and everything. And then here is all the um, edited res responses. So this is answering your question here, what happened. But what's really interesting here is what I love here. That I don't know because if, if you're not... Graphic people will notice something here. What's really interesting, this is how early it is. So this is Sid Shelton and Ruth Gregory. I think it was Sid were working on a design because me being a visual person, not being a, a, a literature person, the left is obsessed with literature. So I've always had an antagonistic problem with the left because they're so bad on visuals, even to this day, you know. Um, So when all this happened, we got the letters. The first thing I went is, we've got to get a fucking logo. We've got to get a flag. We've got to get an image. Sid had already started preparing an image. Now here, this is Sid's image. And for me, this is Sid's cult. You talk about context, Michael. This is Sid under the influence of Yes and every pomp rock band in the world. It's <laughs> his logo. I've gone to David King the most brilliant designer, who I happen to know because I'm my photography at this time, I'm working at the Sunday Times Colour Supplement. David was the designer, and David is a brilliant designer. And if you know all his books at the Tate he did on the Russian Revolution, and you know, he's like amazing. So I go to him, he comes up with this, which is like brilliant, and so contemporary, became one. So within here you've got this, this is where some people were, and this is where we're going. And then, but this sheet was, pumped out before the first temporary hoarding so that we could send out to people and say, you know, get, equate them. So here, here answering your question, so people are saying, so Roderick Little from Middlesbrough, Cleveland, hi, I'm 16, I'm left wing, biggest love of my life is rock music, I want to help any way possible. Chris Hayton, Hackney, I'm only too glad to help, I'm a musician, I play in a band. Sarah Reese, I'm 14, what can I do? Uh, you know what I mean, on and on. Tim, Tony Evans, Merthyr Tidfield, what with Clapton and Bowie, we need somebody like you. Ashcroft, Somerset, I was overjoyed to read your appeal in the press. I want to join, really. Poker band, South London's, greetings, how can we, we're a band, how can we support you? We want to, against the bigotry of Clapton. You know, on and on and on, Lincolnshire, London, Glasgow, Shoreham, Doncaster. You know, Paolo Rezzi, Milan, Italy, Black and White Unite. As a rock fan, you have my support. That was the first few, that was, that was the, what's it called when you've got a baby in a, a premature baby in incubation? This is the incubation, the little incubatory period of Ra. Now, what's and interesting here is that this was all, this was all activated in response to Clapton's words. Yeah, in, in, to the letter. Yeah, in, in Birmingham in um, August 76. But the dominant image is of David Bowie. Yeah. So could you explain why that is? Why is Bowie? Why does Bowie have such relevance there in addition to Clapton? I suppose because, in a sense, at that time Bowie was a bigger star than Clapton, and Bowie. that Hitler was worse than Powell. But you have. Um, but we have Clapton in there as well. Oh yeah. yeah. But what I notice is that in that mocked up image of Bowie, you have him with, with his Hitler moustache. Yeah. This relates, I presume, to the interview that he gave with yes. the NME. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. August before, in August Absolutely. Our, our specifics would be that we heard it was in Playboy magazine, that it was far more detailed. And then there was all that stuff where he arrived at Victoria Railway Station um, and they met him in a German Mercedes Landau, which is a sort of Nazi staff car. And there is, there is pictures however much, you know, of Bowie seacarling in this car. And what, what was in that um, interview, that, that Playboy interview that you'd read, that inspired the use of both him alongside Clapton? Because of him saying Hitler was the first great superstar and Bowie was a superstar. And Bowie was saying the country's in a mess and, you know. But the wonderful thing was that within, I can't remember how long it was, but probably within a year, Bowie retracted all this, said he was a stoned out loony and, you know, he really didn't know what he was talking about and blah, 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 blah. 
and retracted everything and apologised and later on started donating money to left-wing causes and maybe he married a black woman, didn't he, you know, so... But what did, what was Eric Clapton's response to the emergence of Rock Against Racism? Um, there's kind of two two things. One is that Clapton just denied it. And I think he wrote a couple of very half-assed, ambiguous responses to Melody Maker. I think they published one. There's one published where he goes, oh, I think in that first letter he goes, oh, I'm sorry if people thought, but I still think Powell's the right man to lead the country. And then he went on and on. And I spoke to Daniel Rachel of his book, Walls Come Tumbling Down. And he's researched and researched. And the closest thing he ever got was to um, Jerry Dammers meeting Clapton years, years later. And Jerry Dammers confronting him and him going, oh, you can't believe everything you read in the papers, which is so stupid because he's, he's already said, I believe all this. But the other aspect of it was how clever his management and his team were in circumnavigating all this in the world of music and anti-racist politics um, because he's never confronted on any all those sort of holographic programs about what amazing you know the rock god and all this stuff and no one ever mentions about Ra I mean Melvin Bragg did a huge did, didn't they do one on him didn't Alan Yentob do one I think they and there's no mention there's nothing it's like you were saying earlier you know these we're airbrushed out you know it's gone so you know you, you've given reference to um, left-wing motivations and organizational um, practices um, what role did the um, as it was formerly known the International Socialist Party and it, it becomes the Socialist Workers Party what role does that play in the emerging operation of I think it plays um, two two really important roles is one there a long a long rich traditional history of anti-fascism and anti-racism which they go goes right back to the 30s and you know all the traditional um, you know what would have been their forerunners confronting Mosley and Cable Street this is our tradition on the left you know um, but specifically with uh, with IS and the SW because I I I our theatre group was, for a short while, was really sort of part of the IS group. We used to go around doing our shows and Paul Foote would speak after we'd do our theatre or Bernadette McCluskey, you know, and we were very closely intertwined and the theatre group was, was because those groups were all very much part of what was known as the New Left. That was the end of the old Stalinist Communist Party and a new way of looking at socialism um, that, that came out in the 60s, you know, the late 60s, that we were very much part of. And so within IS, you then had a kind of what I would call a kind of closet rockers, because what you'd have on the left is very much a great tradition of, you know, the old whole tainer, donny nonny tainer, you know, all that sort of really folky, you know, great stuff, that tradition. But the Communist Party, for instance, completely frowned upon rock music. It was capitalist music. Pop music was, you know, degenerate and, you know... Whereas lots of members of the new left love music and they love rock music and they loved uh, reggae music and so on, all sorts of different music. So when Ra came along, there was a kind of liberation. Whoa, great, it's okay now, we can, we can come out. And, and there was a huge amount of support for Ra and those left groups. And so what then happened is that the organisation and the leadership within those groups realised that this, this is a phenomenon happening right in front of our eyes, you know, and they're mixing the anti-racist fight with culture and music that they've never done. <laughs> you know, they haven't been involved in that. And they wholeheartedly, people say, oh, they tried to manipulate or whatever. Actually, that, that, that's just not, not the case. Of course, in one sense, they'd want to be part of it because it, they would look for membership because that's what those parties do. But they wholeheartedly gave the support. This page I've showed you here, that was a page in Socialist Worker. And they said to me, we'll give you a whole page. You can do, do what you want with it. And they never tried to influence what we're in it or anything. But what really then picked up fast 
was that they were organised. You know, trade union left-wing groups, they, they're fairly, they've got group, they, they know about organising things and they're tiny, so they have to be pretty good if they're to move or have any action. They're usually pretty good organisers. What's the phrase? You know, they punch above their weight. So suddenly, what helped us enormously is they said, well, we've got, there's this great group in Sunderland. Well, what about us? I don't think we got a letter. So I was going through, we got a letter from Sunderland, you know. I don't think we got one from Cleveland. There's one from Newcastle or, you know. And suddenly, these little spots all over the country, they had organised groups. Uh, they were clearly, you know, they were anti-racist. They wanted to fight the NF. The NF were huge. Don't forget. The, I mean, I thought the NF were going to fucking win. I, I mean, I thought the NF were going to take over the country. Webster was clever. He wasn't an idiot like Tommy Roberts or whatever. He, I mean, he was a clever guy. And it was really frightening, you, you know. You, you, and so to have this alliance where you had these uh, organised left groups in all the major cities of the United Kingdom, and that was the key thing. So it moves... It was an alliance, you know. It moves quite swiftly on from... It moves swiftly on to the end of the anti-Nazi league, which then the two come together and you're ginormous, because then you've got the organised working class, and suddenly you've got trade unionists going, yeah, we've got a hall, you know. So suddenly we haven't got to book a hall for 50 quid, we've got a hall got trade union halls, you've got this, you've got that, you know. Suddenly this alliance is enormous. The ANL is, to is, is nationwide politics. We're cultural headbangers, you know. But the touch paper is Clapton's endorsement of Powell's yeah. racism. Yeah. But, it, but it becomes a national response to grassroots racism becoming politicised. Absolutely. And legitimising the national Yeah, front. and you've got read the letters. Black and white, unite and fight. I want to support you against that bigotry. And that's what we were saying. Then we were saying something totally dynamic. Hold on. You know, let's just go back to this. Let's go to this one and read this one. Remember, this was, this is temporary hoarding, our fanzine. And this is the very first issue of temporary hoarding. When did you launch that? Because you had two concerts. I think that was 77. Yeah, I think it was a year later. I just, the only reason I'm interrupting you, I'm sorry. I'm very bad at bibliography. No, it's, it's absolutely fine. <laughs> and I'm sorry to interrupt you because... You write, um, Clapton performs in August 76. You have your first Ra concert in November 76 with Carol Grant. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the second the following uh, month in December. And at that concert, you have Carol Grimes again. You have Matumbi, which is... Well, Matumbi, that, yeah. And that's led by Dennis Bavel. So and you need to talk to... De I would love to hear Dennis Bavel talk of Maya going down to meet him in South London. That would be really interesting. So, you know, so within the same year, you know, within a season... We're, we're off. Black and white, bang. Rebel music, street music, music that breaks down people's fear of one another, crisis music, now music, music that knows who the real enemy is. Love music, hate racism. That's the key. Black and white together to break the fear down. That was our cultural imperative. And then over the next, whatever it was, those extraordinary five years... Every reggae band in the country uh, of, of, of any note or was promoted by Ra, worked with Ra, we worked with them, put black and white bands on together. Big bands, little bands, small clubs, Leeds Club, attacked by the NF every week, smashing down the doors, breaking down the windows. They kept going, you know, extraordinary people all over the country, you know. But it was that key thing, break down the fear. And that's like today, that's what we need to do today more than ever, you know. So, um, could you tell us about the, the actual political statement that the NF were trying to actually secure? Was it local elections? You know, they had their eye on, the, you know, a, a general election in the future. What exactly Absolutely. Were, they, were building towards? Well, I mean, the, the, it's a huge question. But, but very simply, what motivated us was they came third in the GLC London elections. Out of nowhere, they beat the Liberals. Liberals were, you know, were a national political organisation. And the NF got, I can't remember the exact statistics, something, you know, over 150,000 votes in, you know, a straight-on Nazi party. There's photographs of John Tyndall dressed, dressed in Nazi uniform, regalia. You know, this is proper, there's no backing off. These are full-on Nazis, you know, with Nazi policies. And they were, I mean, Webster was, a, was very clever, the way he campaigned in his propaganda, you know. And he used to say, you know, said you'd be surprised how many police chiefs support what I say I get letters from them you know I mean he he, he had a touchstone at the heart of of British racism you know that white supremacy that is deep in this country you know he had a good touchstone on it you know we know we see it there today it ain't you know it's there you know 
this is it, you know, and, and that's the central tenant that they tapped in on. And it was only uh, several years later when Webster was involved in a court case with Peter Hain. I can't remember the details, but Webster actually said it was the anti-Nazi league and rock against racism. Wherever we went, they were there. They were counter-demonstrating. They were putting out, they were saying we were not, every time we stood up, they said Nazi scum, Nazi scum, you know. So he, he, he and I always make the equation that what we were doing, the pressure, we were applying as much pressure on every level. Our job as culturalists was we were cultural, applying that pressure on youth. We were trying to, and people often say, oh, there wasn't that many black people at this gig or whatever. And you go, look, our argument was with white youth. You know, we were trying to stop the NF influencing white youth. That was our key battleground, you know. And we made the NF uncool. That's what they were. They weren't cool. You know, that was the battleground that we fought. And the way that they tried to kick back, the Ackland Hall was, was um, yeah. burnt down. Your yeah. studio yeah. was burnt down. Yeah, And where we, the, the P.O. box address for the Ra, that, the Rara letters, where the letters were in Cotton's Gardens, that was petrol bombed, you know. And the Albany Theatre was petrol bombed in South London. They were very active. But I think what had happened by then is interesting. I don't know if that was the NF. I think that was probably more Combat 88, who were really hardcore street Nazis, who thought the NF were a bit soft or whatever. So I think they had started to physically bomb, you, you, you know what I mean, and try to create terror in South Hall. Um, they were within the NF, you know what I mean? But they were like more the NF honor guard type, the real hard line, you know. I think what's um, quite important to, to discuss is, you know, as you, as you mentioned, the alignment with other um, grassroots political organisations having, you know, the infrastructure of um, national trade unions mm. to, to actually benefit and utilise, is that it takes everything away from, you know, the, the very um, London-centric way yes. that we look at, Absolutely. at life. And there's a real national agenda, yeah. this regional youthful activism, and mm. it's motivated by music, by yeah. love of music, and what music manages to do. Absolutely, and you and you, like you said, and you have to understand the power of music. You know, really, it wasn't until Ra that I really understood the enormous power of music. Um, to this day, you know, here I am, seventy-one years old. I still get emails from, "Hi, I'm Archon in Philadelphia. I love what you guys are doing." You know, and this the sixteen-year-old kid in Philadelphia has found my email and telling me, we want to do this, we got Trump, we want to do something. And I mean, this is 40 years ago, but it was the power of music. It, it's in, you know, I mean, I'd love intellectuals to give me a whole thing on the drum. I'm obsessed about the drum and the heartbeat and the beat of life. I, I think it's enormous because the devil takes it as well. So the military uses it, and, but we use it. Reggae uses it, soul uses it, jazz music. And the drum is at the heart of reggae for me. I just love the drum. I mean, I'm bass and drum type, but, but you know, the drum and drumming and it, what, what it means is just that power of music. It's in, indescribable. And we were lucky. We tapped into it. But you have these different pulleys pulling you as an organisation. You have this musical um, agenda to actually utilise, to reach out to, quote-unquote, the right artists, to actually also carve out a way of looking and changing the way that we actually see music presented live by having, you know, a black and white artist, yeah. a, 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 an arrangement of them. But you also have a way of making sure that this isn't just relegated to a concert, that it lives on, that it, it maintains a momentum. So slogans are quite important. Absolutely. The, the visual presence that, you know, takes on... Absolutely. Utilizes your so in raw, very, very often, We'd use things that we'd used in agitprop theatre quite a lot. Like what? Like projectors. Projectors were real weapons-grade hippie cultural power. I love projectors. And that all came from San Francisco. And the Big Brother Holding Company and all these bands that we knew about as me being a 60s hippie. So they used to have the most fantastic um, uh, lighting rigs, huge rigs that would be at these shows. And um, 
we started we used to be right because in in the in the theater we used to we performed at a, a, a club in Tottenham Court Road in, in our agitprop days called UFO unidentified flying object UFO and one night we were performing and so were the Pink Floyd as you do, of course, Pink Floyd were nobody then. <laughs> they were nothing. They were just some little band, and they had a great slideshow. And I, I said to this guy, so I said, "Can I have a look at the thing?" And the bloke said, "Yeah, climb up on the rig, this little scaffolding rig." And I climbed up, and he said, "I said, oh, he said, do you like all?" I said, "Yeah, I'm a photographer. I, I love all this." And he said, "All right, well, come on." And he, and he said, well, I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, well, they're coming on me. He said, I've got this plate here. And he said, put some butter in there. And I've got a candle and some green ink. And so and we had a pipette. And, and I so I put the butter in and put the candle and it bubbled. And then bang, suddenly on the screen was this amazing psychedelic stuff. And that, that really influenced me. I loved all that. So when it came decade and a bit later to Ra, we started to... At that time, the big influence was punk graphics. So we had a whole, we had a host of our own artists, and Jamie Reed obviously influenced us all with the wonderful safety pin through the, you know, all that stuff, all that stuff, you know. So we had our own team people, and we started to make up all our own graphics. So Sid Shelton, Ruth Gregory, Roger Huddle would do it, and then there was two great, what I call second wave of Ra. And they became brilliant organisers themselves in the second phase of riot. They were arrested at Lewisham by the police, actually, as prime organisers of the Lewisham riot, which they were just organising their video at the time. Um, it's John Dennis and Wayne Minter, who were from the Royal College of Art. And they produced fantastic graphics. And they started to use video cameras and all that stuff. And so we'd whack them up at gigs. We'd just put huge, put five sheets up you know, get some second-hand parachute material, just hang it over and get the projectors out. You know, you can get a second-hand projector reasonably cheap. Sometimes we'd have four or five projectors, you know. Some, then we started making our own banners up, just, just making a, an alphabet up, cut out an alphabet, then cut out the fabric and then cut the letters out and stick it on it. And then so it'd say, love music, hate racism, big banners, 20, 30 foot. And all that sort of stuff. And that became, rather than having some boring speaker stand up which to my unfortunately it's still these days the left still does it you have meetings there's nine speakers and they're all, they're all going you go for god's sake just shut up just a couple of people and get the dj on you know what i mean and then also we has djs and then the sound systems and they go with the projectors and all that sort of stuff so that was that great amalgamation of all kinds of culture that came out of punk graphics at that time so could you actually show um Hold up for the camera the very first um, copy of um, temporary hoarding. So that expands on yeah. the design of w w this camera. Probably this one. Yeah. So this is this is the ten plate that we used from then on. Temporary hoarding. Great name because it is temporary. And that quote that you read um, that was by David. David Widgery, who was one of the great. He was a, he was a G East London GP, um, a great. Um, he was on the Royal Central Committee sort of thing. A brilliant guy. He was a writer. Um, he used to, um, when Neville and that lot got locked up in the Oz trials, he was the editor of Oz magazine in that period. A well-established left-wing writer. Um, so, yeah, and that, that was our... And then we'd had the logo, so the sort of... That was the official logo we'd started up. And, and what we'd do is we'd always turn it into... So it would open up. So this, this one's lovely. This was from the Royal College of Art. So don't just sit back and watch the TV, get off your ass. you know what I mean? And then it would open up every issue, you'd have a, a main... So these are two photographs I took of The Clash, a very early gig. So The Clash were incredibly important at that time, so we had their lyrics and those pictures. And raw all the time, we just go bang the logo up, get the logo out wherever you are, just keep it, you know. And then on the back, you'd have... Um, information on how to organize gigs you know what to what to do and then you'd had our address and, all, and this was before we got burnt down and then if you move to the really further on where you start having really big ones sorry what what, sorry. Um, what date would roughly would you would that 76 77 right. okay, 77 so probably the first one. yeah I, I was in ridiculous we didn't date it 
Later they start being dated. I don't know if this one's dated. No, it's not dated. Look, number three. <laughs> no date. Elvis had just died. When was that? 77. Right, 77. So Elvis had just died. It's all about the August with Rock. He died in August. Yeah. So these start to come out. So we'd had Lewisham. So this is the Lewisham. So tell us about Lewisham. And then you turn into this. So what happened Absolutely in Lewisham gigantic. In what was the significance of Lewisham in oh, That's too big a question. Well, okay, what led up to this enormous event? You know, you've got that now. I think what, in, uh, what in the is for, for Lewisham, I think what, um, what was so enormous about Lewisham was the front had made it enormous. I mean, if they'd have succeeded, dangerous things would have, would have happened if they'd have got away with it. You know, they were going to march, march through a, an immigrant area right through the middle of Lewisham that everybody knows is, you know, is Caribbean community. You know, I mean, that was like, that was so provocative. And so I think everybody, uh, and what was great about Lewisham as well is very, although there were, obviously there's always sectarian elements within these big things. And some people don't want to confront and some people want to have a tea party over there whilst the Nazis march here or whatever. Whereas our line was always, you know, non-passaran, you know, I mean, they can't, you've got, to, you've got to do everything you can to stop them, you know. They shall not pass. Yeah, they shall not pass, absolutely. And, um, but the great thing was, is, the, is that the community absolutely was into that. And so there's lots of organising for a long, long time before all that happened. And so when you got to the day, you can see... I mean, there's lovely here, the expressions on these people's faces here in the local community um, really sum it all up. Look, this dark as how there. And that picture there is has obviously gathered um, this, momentum. Yes, this picture here is taken by Sid Shelton. And, and it's re recently been really been showed a lot with Darkus's death. And Sid's also has a, has running a Rock Against Racism photographic exhibition around the country, which uh, if anybody gets a chance, you should go and see because it's wonderful. Um, uh, and then you can see the motley crew of the front and who can only march because they're protected by the police. Um, and then it became, it was such a big deal. There was such a build-up and all the local shops shut down and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and it, it was so important that it was a huge turnout and they were absolutely crushed. You and Roger Huddle, who's obviously a key member yeah. of um, RA, you, you wrote a book that was published earlier this year, um, Reminiscences of RA. An oral history, a fantastic collection. And one of the, the um, things that Roger pointed out was that the National Front would dissect the non-white community to work out which it viewed or which could be attacked at a weaker point. So um, they would attack Bengalis in a particular time significant to their faith. And, and it wasn't just, Rock Against Racism was not primarily, it, as it expanded, it wasn't just about the racism shown by the National Front against black people. It was also against the British Asian community mm. as well. Mm. And people were losing lives. Yeah. So can, can you tell me your memory of the death of Blair Peach? And because, well, as a young child, I remember that. But I remember that not in a way that you would have. Mm. The, um, there was a very strong raw group in Southall. Um, it was a mixture of very politicised South Asians, be they Indian, Pakistani or whatever, um, and the local Caribbean community mixed with punks under the headings of People Unite, which was Misty and Roots. So you had this amazing, uh, the, the Southall Youth Association one of the leaders was a bloke called, um, he's a Sikh, called Budwinder Singh. And he was a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. So he was a Marxist. And he was really, he was, I think he was a, a telephone engineer. He was a really articulate, militant guy. He really stood firm. And they, like Lewisham, they made Southall make or break. You know, either we win or we lose, because there's no way around it. You know, we, if you don't fight, you... What's that great phrase? If you, if you, don't, if you don't fight, you won't... I can't remember. There's a great quote from Bob, Bob Crow. If you don't fight, you lose. But if you don't fight and you don't win, then you never know what would have happened. Do you know what I mean, type of thing. But he made that p 
point that uh, this was the and it was really well organized i mean there was a massive t it was a big demonstration and the left came from all over london was sort of and uh, and of course we know from history that the police were outrageously heavy um, all the way around i mean misty could easily have had two people dead because they went into the people unite offices and smashed the whole place up everything and clarence who was their organizer got um, got his head smashed in and was in hospital for about nine weeks um, and then, of course, the next when we'd heard the next day that um, Blair Peach had been killed, there was an immediate call for another demonstration. And I remember going, and we said we should go. Everybody, it's the kind of thing like you should go to show everything. So you should go with your family. So we had our, we just had our first child, and we went with our child in a pram because there was a kind of families everybody. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And local people had said, we're all going out with the children. And yeah, because exactly as you say, with the link. And I just remember the police just sneering at us, you know, hating us for having our kids there. Because they were then in an awkward position as they couldn't quite steam in and all the rest of it, you know. But it then, um, I think the police were, as ever in these occasions, they were then really clever at just stonewalling the whole, in the inquiry into the, the way the police had operated and their, their lockers had lead coshes in it and all this sort of stuff. And they just dissipated the whole thing. But what it succeeded in doing was on a much broader, like you said, on a level of the ANL, was to really mobilize the next time there was the, that, that you really then did put, well, this is really serious because people are getting killed, you know what I mean? So you, you've got to come out. So whenever there's a confrontation against the NF, we need to numbers. Because then the little sectarian things started happening, like you'd have people who wanted to fight. You know, we're, we're going to get armed. We're going to go and smash the NF up. You go, well, if you start, you know, if, 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 it's like if you organise a big demonstration against the BNP bookshop, this is, say, later on, you know, after the NF has declined, and then you get coaches from Swansea full up with nurses and hospital technicians, and as they come to get off the coach at the BNP demo, you arm them with a crowbar or a baseball bat. They're highly likely to turn around and get back on the coach and go back to Swansea. Because that's, that's not what we're doing. We're not all here. We're not at a fighting stage. We're here in mass demonstrations. It's our numbers that can defeat them. And that's what we were then on, was getting massive, massive turnouts at the, the carnivals. I think those sort of incidences really turned the carnival into massive... 100,000 nationwide things, you know. I mean, Manchester was huge. Yes, you know. I want to talk to you about the carnivals because you, you mentioned when you, when you gave reference to David Ridgery there that he was a member, he was on the board. How does this board, when does it form? It sounds a bit formal board. In the end, yes. it, it became known as the rubber dub styley. <laughs> but what it, what it was is we would meet. We, we were, we were uh, cognizant enough of socialist organization that we couldn't be a bunch of raving loonies you know we had to get all have, have things organized and so we would have yeah we'd have regular we used to meet in my old studio in Soho in, the, in those days before we moved and um, we'd have yeah we'd have a gen look I mean what was that one I brought to show you yeah so like here you've got a, an agenda sheet you know <laughs> this was for the you're talking about Blair Peach so this is an agenda sheet for the Southall benefits. So we then organised benefits for the legal battles for all those who were arrested at Southall and to raise funds for Blair Peach's family. And, and what's extraordinary, that I was pointing out to you earlier, is that it's just done so nondescript and every day. But on this little type sheet, these are the bands that we got to play at um, the Rainbow Theatre in Finsbury Park to raise money for the... Um, Southall legal fees and all the rest of it. And they just, it reads incredible. It's just so ordinary. Look, Friday, July 13th, the pop group, who were huge at that time, Misty in Roots, gigantic reggae band, The Ruts, one of the most amazing punk bands, and Pete Townsend and Friends. Pete Townsend loaned all the technical gear for the gig. The following night, Saturday, Bongo Danny, local reggae band, Aswad, absolute kings of smooth reggae at that time, the members, wonderful punk band, and the Clash, 
and tickets for sale, three pounds. Oh, okay. I mean, what a lineup, you know. So this was, this was what the organising committee would be doing. Um, but by this time also, Ra had set up an office. So it actually had an office in Finsbury Park where John Dennis and Wayne Minter worked full-time with a young woman called Kate Webb, who was about 17 or 18 years old at the time. So that, that gig that you just um, gave the, the, the artist, that was in 1979? Yeah. Right. So I'm going to peel you back now. I'm just going to peel you back because I want to think... That very first gig in November 1976 with Carol Grimes, how, does, how did that come about? So, you, you know, you, you, say, you said in, in your letter you want a rank-and-file yeah. organisation. Who calls Carol? Who thinks that Carol... Okay, that comes about because you touched on one of the key things why I think Ra... People say, why, did, why, why do you think Ra worked? I think this is the key, one of the number one things why Ra worked. Many, the key, the core of Ra, say there was a dozen people, of those dozen early activists, the core of those people were all 60s activists, the core. We'd all been involved. Anti-Vietnam, you know, the Ireland, struggles in Ireland, women's movement, radical theatre, radical arts, radical puppetry, you know, all sorts of stuff. We'd all been involved. We'd all been on demos. We'd all carried, you know, we, we like had make an impact on Vietnam demos. We, 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 we stitched up and made massive Viet Cong flags that were about 30 foot long and we'd carry them on the demos. And then we'd do agitprop plays on the, theater, on, the, on the demos. We'd work with bands and musicians. So it wasn't, we weren't strangers to this stuff. You follow what I'm saying? So to put a gig on, it was easy peasy. Yeah, you get a back line, get a hall, get a thing. But suddenly with Ra, security. Whereas in the hippie days, fine, we just do it. But suddenly we always had to start thinking about security because, you know, we were getting threats and there was obviously, it was just ABC, just sensible. You had to worry about the security of how you do these things. So the security at the um, East London gigs was provided by some of the serious heavy geezers who were trade unionists. Who else would we get? They were a royal group of shop dock workers, shop stewards. And so it was dock workers who, 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 who that group of militant left-wing dock workers, not the ones who marched with Powell, the ones who stood against Powell marching with Powell, stood on their own, holding banners saying, Powell is shit, you know, amazing people. And they came and said, OK, welcome. So, they, you know, they helped us out and they would come again. They came at a very famous gig at um, North Central London Poly where we had Misty and Roots and Sham 69. And Sham 69 had all their British movement skinheads with them. Yes, because... That was an unbelievable gig. Because what's quite interesting is that groups like Jimmy Percy's Sham 69, they had to disassociate themselves He from, did, yeah. He was quite keen to disassociate themselves. But obviously with groups like... Misty and Roots, Matumbi, they didn't have to disassociate themselves from the NF no, because no. they were fighting directly yeah, yeah, from them. They yeah. weren't fighting yeah. allegiance of yeah. So you have artists who are performing, although still under the anti-racist banner, but they have an agenda, certainly for Sham 69, to actually see themselves breaking free from the negative associations. So with Ra, the committee, the, the longer and the wider view to have a national response to to amalgamate protests on a number of social and economic as well as identity issues the decision to have black and white bands alternate alternative musical bands who who first booked matumbi and mist and roots i'm just so interested in god i can't it would have been me i went down to see dennis I went to, I can't even remember the club. I, went, I mean, I was the only white guy in the club, you know. Um, but someone, uh, someone had played me Matumbi record, uh, a single. God, remember the singles. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I, 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 God, I can visually remember. I remember going into the place and I remember that Matumbi had two managers who were real hustlers. And I got the feeling they were going, hey, this thing sounds good. You know what I mean? That we could make some money. I got, I, got, I got the feeling and I was going, well, all right, they'll get that. I'll get something else. 
you know, we'll get the anti-racist thing. So, one of those managers against John Francis. I can't remember. I remember two managers. They had two managers, yeah. And I thought, and someone, David Widger said to me, I think they've, bit of, they've hustled you, Red. And I said, well, I don't know. You know, we want the band. You know, we'll see what happens. But this, what you're saying is really interesting because it brings it on to the whole, another question that we're asked many times that I've debated with myself quite often is, who used you? Did you use them? Did they use you? Of the whole question. And people raise this quite often. They say, oh, these punk bands only played with you because they got huge coverage and they, you know. Oh, the, you know, Aswad, Aswad don't give a shit. They only, and all I know is that my own experience of how it was and how it worked, and I know there is some delicate balance of these things within it, but I know that generally speaking, like you said, Misty have their own agenda, which is black pride and black culture. Now, don't tell me they're coming to do our gig to get an extra 50 quid because we didn't pay that much money. You know, OK, they might have got a bigger audience to sell their albums. That's great by me because they're spreading their own culture, which is fine, you know. Um, so then people would say, oh, The Clash are only doing it, you know. And I said, but hold on a minute. The Clash are getting death threats for doing this, mate. You know, do you know, do you get death threats for playing your, you know, I mean, I get death threats. It's a fucking frightening thing when someone phones you up and says, I hear you've just had a kid. We know where you live. You don't sleep for four months. You know what I mean? This is frightening shit. So don't tell me that the clash, because I saw the clash go to the NF headquarters outside and demonstrate. And it's fantastic. And I think at one point they did it with some of Steel Pulse. Were you there? Yeah. Well, there you go. My memory's correct. Now, that is an amazing thing. You don't do that to gain sales of records. They get some 88, column 88 bloke wants to put a crowbar in your knees. You know what I mean? So I, I think it was preposterous from people. I mean, as I said, there's some tiny element maybe, but not the main item was that everybody I ever met was absolutely ready to go, you know.